riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Welcome to the local edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm Jason Dolp. And uh, coming up in the second half of the program, Workshift Live, James B. Huntington has the week off. He'll be back with us next week. We're going to be checking in with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, talking about women in science in the second half of the program. Patricio Rabio has that interview. But first up, it's how we always start off on a Wednesday, even when it's as snowy as this one is. We've got our weekly news roundup with the River Reporter. For that, we turn to award-winning reporter Liam Mayo for the River Reporter. Liam, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back. I guess we should start off by saying, like, are, uh, how are you doing in the snow? And if you're, is there any news or breaking news of anything happening out there because of the snow? I haven't heard anything on my end. I just hope people are staying safe out there. Yeah. And we've been letting folks know, of course, the storm uh, in Sullivan County in the western part of Ulster County, it's a storm warning that uh, goes until 10 o'clock tonight. And a lot of the other counties in northeast Pennsylvania and and, uh, in our area, New York State, it's a winter weather advisory. And it's supposed to change over to sleet and then rain if it hasn't already in your area. And it's going to move from south to north. So. There's there's a bit of the weather in the beginning of our weekly news roundup, but let's now talk about uh, Never Sink Watershed. I know there's a management plan, um, and they're starting to kick off a public outreach period, partnering with like Sullivan County Planning Department, Friends of the Upper Delaware River. Uh, what's what is the the watershed management plan? The watershed management plan is a document that uh, this group of partners is working on. Like you said, it's the Sullivan County Planning Department and the Friends of the Upper Delaware River as two of the key ones. And it would look at the watershed of the Neversink River, study it, um, look at sort of holistic recommendations to protect it, and try and put a little bit of capital money toward um, carrying a couple of those recommendations out. Um they held a kickoff to like this year's public outreach for it um, this past Wednesday, the 18th. Um, and uh, one of the things they said about why this is necessary is a river and just water in general sort of doesn't really care about town boat boundaries and it doesn't care about county boundaries. Yeah. Um, it kind of just does its own thing. So if one town is looking at trying to preserve its little portion of the river corridor and trying to understand how the river is going to affect its own property, that's not terribly helpful if you don't have the knowledge of the whole watershed. So this group of partners is going to be working on the plan throughout this year. Uh, There are a couple of series of public events to try and get people's input. The next virtual info session is going to be on January 30th next Monday. Um, if you want more information on that, it's at fudr.org slash WMP. And then moving into the summer, there will be more like hands-on in-person sessions to try and envision what uh, the NeverSync watershed could be, leading into a draft of a plan in the fall and a couple more sessions to hear public comment on what that draft could be. 
Friends of the Upper Delaware River, um, FUDR is actually going to be guests on the local edition uh, two nights from now on Friday night with Patricio. So I'm sure they'll be talking about the the kickoff of this uh, uh, period working on this plan. And we'll get more details that way. Um, over in Pike County, um, looking at rental subsidies. What's this housing program about, Liam? The commissioners of Pike County have established a new rental assistance program called the Temporary Rental Subsidy Program. Um, it's offering subsidies to uh, renters in Pike County. Um, and how it works is it will provide money to make sure that renters pay no more than 30% of their monthly income toward housing costs. That's generally the figure used to determine whether you're paying like too much for your rent, whether your rent is unaffordable for you. So through this subsidy program, uh, the county will be paying for um, certain, a certain portion of the excess of that mark, the stuff that goes above that mark. Um, and it's doing this sort of as one of the things it's trying to do to answer the need for housing in Pike County, specifically rental housing. Um, there was a study that the county conducted um, in 2020 looking at its housing markets, and it found that uh, the housing market is kind of bad. <laughs> there are a lot of issues for renters specifically. Yeah. Um, it specifically for Pike uh, between 1980 and 2010, the population more than tripled, sort of going from 18,000 to 57,000. And there was some new development that occurred, um, but a lot of it was in single family housing. So since 2000, uh, there were 744 single family home permits issued and only one multi unit development. So there's this huge gap in the supply of rental housing available and in the uh, demand for rental housing from this growing population. So uh, this rental subsidy program will hopefully help people with their uh, rent costs for the moment. Um, but sort of more in the long term, the county is looking at various ways to expand on its rental stocks. Right. You know, I think of Pike County as being very rural, but we forget it. Uh, it's actually right on the border with New Jersey. So it's very accessible to all the urban areas in the tri-state area. It's a, you know, a key destination just like Sullivan County is in terms of like population growth, people looking, uh, if they're looking to get out of the city or the suburbs, you know, it's a next logical place. So I can imagine that's put a lot of pressure as we're seeing all around our region uh, on rental prices. Yeah. That is a very good thing to point out that it is kind of in a similar geographic uh, position as Sullivan is and kind of like Sullivan um, a lot of people in the area are thinking about uh, how to get new rental units in the ground to help fix this um, we've been the the front page of this week's paper for the river reporter is all about housing for Pike County and for Sullivan County and one of the similarities we're seeing there is that people are Acknowledging that like current development is a little restrictive on what you can do in terms of multi-unit development, that a lot of it is more geared towards single-family housing, um, and that both counties are looking at ways to get more rental units in the ground, be that through uh, subsidizing construction, be that through sort of working with zoning ordinances to 
um, create a little bit of change. So I think it really speaks to the extent to which people really must be looking at this issue and how serious they're taking it that this, I mean, this is a fairly progressive step to take for Pike County, uh, which, you know, it has a mix of, of political persuasions. There's fairly conservative governance in that area. These are progressive steps to take. So it really shows that people are looking at the issue and, and kind of putting the politics aside because it is such a, a big issue here. Um, and let's stay in PA for the last story. I, I, Honesdale Borough Council has a new member. I'd like you to tell us who that is. But before you do, can you tell us, um, is, is a, is a borough council like a village board and about like how many people are on it? Yeah. Uh, borough council is sort of similar to a village council. Um, I'm not super familiar with the intricacies here, so bear with me, but I believe in Pennsylvania there are townships that are the equivalent of towns, but then there are also these boroughs as their own unit, and these boroughs have their own borough councils. Um, and in Pennsylvania, the Honesdale Borough Council had a vacancy on its, I believe, seven-person board. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure on that. Um, with the resignation of longtime member Jared Newbon. Um, so the council selected Honesdale High School English teacher Eric Cooley to fill the seat. Um, he sort of th- said that he decided to apply um, just because of the importance of serving the community. Um, so it seems like he'll be a dedicated choice there. Um, during the selection process itself, uh, some of the members of the count- borough council um, had a few critiques for the way it was done. Um, so Cooley made it in with a unanimous vote, but the way the process worked was whoever was first nominated was then voted on, and then the other two candidates, um, both of whom were women, um, weren't really considered. Um, so uh, some of the members of the council said that like a bit of an opportunity was missed to increase diversity on the board and sort of make it a more open and transparent process. So, so, so there, there's some, again, there's some folks not happy with how this went down. Yeah. And, and again, Cooley received unanimous votes. I'm sure he'll be a wonderful candidate and a wonderful person to serve on the board. Um, there were just some complaints about the process by which um, the election itself went down. Right. All right. Well, Liam, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, uh, even as the winter storm continues on out there. Thank you so much for this weekly news roundup. Thanks for having me. Stay safe out there. Okay. And before we go to our uh, next local guest, let's take a moment to check in with what's happening in Albany on one of the biggest issues in New York State right now which is, of course, bail reform. Governor Kathy Hochul says she will press the state legislature to adopt her plan to further revise the state's controversial bail reform laws. But legislative leaders remain reluctant to make more changes without a better understanding and more data on the law's true effects. The 2019 law ended many forms of cash bail. Critics believe it's contributed to a crime spike. They say the statute needs to be amended to allow judges more discretion if they believe that a defendant might be dangerous if they're released before their trial without having to post bond. 
Hochul, whose opponent in the closely contested governor's race last November made a campaign issue out of the bail reform laws, is responding to the criticisms. In her State of the State message, she proposed revisions to the law to make it easier for judges to set bail for more serious crimes. The judge should have more discretion and to be able to consider more factors than simply whether or not the individual is likely to return to court when they're required to. Hochul says the way the statute is written creates conflicts for judges. The law requires that they must consider what are known as the least restrictive means that are necessary to ensure that a defendant returns for their court date. But another part of the law, amended in 2022, permits judges to consider other factors when deciding whether to set bail. They include whether the alleged crime included use or possession of a handgun or if domestic violence was involved. We have an inconsistency in the law right now. Hochul says the proposed tweaks to the law do not undermine the fundamental premise behind bail reform, which she says is to prevent people from long stays in jail simply because of income inequality and their inability to pay for bail. Because individuals accused of low-level crimes, petty crimes, should not have to be sitting in Rikers Island for three years awaiting their day in court. Democrats who hold supermajorities in both houses of the legislature are reluctant to sign on to further revisions to the law. Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says the original law was limited to ending bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. She says judges have always had the ability to impose bail for people accused of more serious crimes. The Senate leader says a hearing on the effects of the law to be held January 30th will provide more clarity. Our committees will be having a joint hearing to go over data. Uh, at the end of January, where we will again have some context where we begin to discuss what, if anything, should be done. Senator Zelnor Myrie is one of the several progressive-leaning senators who would need to back Hochul's proposed changes for the bail reform revisions to be approved. Myrie says he's reserving judgment on the proposal for now, but he says any efforts to curb crime must also include plans to lift more people out of poverty. Any discussion on public safety should also be including prevention of crime should be attacking the root causes of crime, giving people a job, housing, educational opportunities. Republicans who are in the minority party in both houses say that Hochul's proposal doesn't go far enough and that the entire law should be repealed. Among them is Senator Tom O'Mara. He's a ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee and is also on the Judiciary and Codes Committees. Is this a step in the right direction? Small step, I believe. I don't think that's going to be enough. Uh, to reverse this dangerous trend that we have going on today. The governor will have some leverage to get her proposal approved by the legislature during the upcoming budget season. Last year, the governor held up the spending plan for nine days after the due date until reluctant lawmakers finally acquiesced and agreed to some bail reform changes. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. And thanks to senior Albany correspondent Karen DeWitt and the New York State Public Radio Exchange for that report. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about women in science. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Join us for a very special Let's Talk Vets. Find out what's new at the VA. And then hear our in-depth conversation with Matt Healy, Orange County ADA, and Carla Farrell, Community Engagement and Partnership Coordinator, Hutchin Valley VA. We're going to find out how the newly formed Orange County Coalition 
to prevent veteran suicide is working to reduce the number of our heroes who take their own lives each day. That's Wednesday, 7 p.m., right here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the Local Edition News and Information, keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm Jason Dolt. And the Department of Environmental Conservation is hosting a series of virtual talks called Women in Science. These talks allow folks to meet scientists, community leaders, and environmental educators discussing data literacy, wetland restoration, field research, and more. This Thursday, scientist Maya Niamasto will join scientist Ashley Alred to discuss inclusive summer research with young scientists. Radio Catskills Patricio Rabio had a chance to speak with scientist Maya Niamasto and the coordinator of the Women in Science series, Rebecca Hauser. And Patricio started off by asking, how did this series start? We've been running this series since 2020. Um, so because of COVID, we had to switch to an online platform rather than um, have educators meet us in a conference type setting. So the series uh, really features leaders in science and education um, who've established themselves as experts in the variety of the STEM fields they might work in. Maya, can you tell us about your field of study and the science organizations that you are a part of? Um, so I'm, I work with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation and the Hudson River Estuary Program. Uh, and my role with um, the, these organizations is primarily as an educator. So I, I run a lot of field science education programs and uh, lead students on outdoor um, adventures along the banks of the Hudson River and, and sometimes on the waters of, of the estuary. Uh, I've been working with the DEC for about five years. Uh, and previous to that, I was um, a student at Stony Brook University doing marine science um, studies there. And then before that, I worked with the Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, which is a tall ship that sails on the Hudson River, doing outdoor environmental education and sailing on the on the Hudson for many years. So my role with the Women in Science series to this point has been as an audience member. I've really enjoyed over the past uh, three years getting to see a lot of these speakers and learning quite a lot from, you know, some people I had never heard of before and others are colleagues that I was just really thrilled to hear Um speak more in depth about their own role, their own kind of path to becoming a scientist and what kind of projects they're working on. So when Rebecca asked this year if I was interested in in being one of the um, featured speakers, I was really excited to do so because um, I really gained a lot from seeing other mentors and other emerging scientists talk about their work. And so I thought, you know, I owe I owe one to the team to, to come and talk about what we're doing because we have some really exciting projects that we're working on as well. What sparked your interest in science? What got you studying science and working in science? And that's a great question. So I grew up in a family of musicians. Um, my parents are both uh, classical musicians, and I grew up in Minnesota, far from here. And to me, the definition of science as a kid was not something that I was really excited about or interested in. I didn't really understand what science was, to be really honest. What I did love was playing in the creek in my backyard playing in the water, playing in the mud, catching frogs, looking for salamanders. I had a very um, kind of rich um, wildlife connection as a kid. Just lots of un, um, unstructured hours playing in wetlands. 
And it turns out, I found out that is a lot of what science really is. It's like, it's personal exploration. It's asking big questions. It's going out and finding the, the answers by observing the natural world. So the way I came to understand that is um, when I was working on the Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, I was there because I really liked kids and I liked music and I liked being on boats. So I thought that was the connection I was making there. I was able to go sailing every day with kids of all ages and sing songs with them about um, about nature. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in water policy because I thought originally if I was going to have a positive impact on the world, it would be surrounding water because we all need water to survive. And there's so much international conflict around sharing of resources. And water seems like one of those, you know, really fundamental resources that humans can't live long without. And there's a lot of a lot of international conflict that really comes down to access to resources, access to water in particular. But it wasn't until working on Clearwater that I realized that in order for for policies to really protect water and protect human access to water, it all has to be based on sound science. Um, and and that's when I started to understand that I have a passion for understanding the world and it can be done through through science. And so I that's when I decided to go to Stony Brook University and look at marine science as a as a field. But really, for me, going into science has always been about being a better teacher. So I wanted to learn how the scientific method worked. I wanted to learn how the Hudson River aquatic system worked better and how to use science as a tool to engage young people in understanding their world and becoming empowered to, to, to make change. So um, I'm, yeah, for me, it was a circuitous, you know, non-straight path uh, that went from music to adventure to sailing and eventually to science. And I think where I've landed now is a really good intersection of all of those things together. Rebecca, you coordinate the series Women in Science. Can you tell us more about this upcoming talk that's going to happen on Thursday, January 26th, starting at 3.30, Inclusive Summer Research with Young Scientists? Um, I, I believe I, we probably could have my talk a little bit more closely about it because it's our project. But um, So we have been working with students for the last few years, mainly high school and college students who will come and do research and science with us at the Nori Point Environmental Education Center, um, where they have the opportunity to do real research, um, learn from scientists, learn from educators at Nori Point, really get their hands dirty in the water, looking at water quality, looking at the fish that live in the Hudson. They get to design their own research projects, and then they get to create a poster and present their research at the end of the, the few weeks that they're working with us. Um, a lot of these students we've been seeing for the last couple of years, which is great. Um, we worked with them in high school, and now when they're in college, they become mentors for our high school students. So it's a really great hands-on approach to working in the field of science. Maya, how about you? What can folks expect uh, for the upcoming talk? Yeah, when um, when folks register and log in to the Women in Science talk on Thursday, uh, you'll get to meet myself and Ashley. And, you know, we thought about our talk really carefully because... In, um, in designing the two programs, TIDES, which is known as the Institute Discovering Environmental Scientists, which is the one that we run at Nori Point, and the program that she runs, which is MHS, um, which is Mid-Hudson Young Environmental Scientists. When designing those two programs and, you know, having implemented them for a few years and reflected on them, what we have found is that um, the favorite part for, for students generally is connecting with their peers, connecting with mentors, connecting with other people, having a team aspect and and um, like kind of supporting each other through through their work. And that's really what Ashley and I have done with the two programs as well. So, you know, we've worked in close collaboration 
formatting our applications, going through interviews for students, designing schedules, reflecting on what worked and what didn't work. So the talk is going to really reflect that where, you know, we'll each talk a little bit about our career paths, how we've come to this point, how we design the programs. But we've also um, we want to demonstrate how collaborative our process has been and how that is really what um, some one of the highlights of science is, is like asking these questions with other people and working together to, to help um, answer the questions or or you know, maybe reveal more questions below. So I'll be asking her some things and she'll be asking me some things. And then we're going to ask the audience as well, um, because it's, you know, in being a, a teacher and an educator, um, I find that I learn more, much more from my students than I think they do from me. Uh, so anyone who's logging in can expect to um, have a chance to put in the chat a uh, response to a couple of questions. So the questions that we're going to ask throughout the talk are reflective a little bit of the process that we went through when designing our project or these programs, or they could also be reflective of um, how we came to be women in science. So one of the questions is we will be asking folks to describe a meaningful or memorable moment that they've had outside. So not necessarily science related, but just connecting outdoors with nature. We'll also be asking folks, was there someone in your life, a peer or a mentor, who helped inspire um, you towards uh, working towards a goal? Uh, another question we will be asking to think about a time when you didn't feel included, welcomed, or invited to participate in a group or activity. And what was it that made you feel that way? What was it that made you feel excluded? So these are all questions that we've asked ourselves, questions we've asked the students, and it's going to really help drive our uh, our presentation on Thursday. We'll also talk a little bit about the programs themselves, what makes TIDES and MHS unique, um, and we'll highlight some of the students and some of the projects that have come out of, of these um, programs. So we'll look at you know some of the great successes and some of the great challenges that have come up along the way. Definitely. You mentioned folks registering to see this talk. Rebecca, how can folks get more information and register to see the talks that's happening Thursday and upcoming talks? Yeah, so um, if you just Google New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Women in Science, it'll pop up. There's a flyer. It gives you information about each one of our speakers. And then there's a register button and they just hit that and they fill out a couple of questions and they can either come to one or, or, or the next three that we have available. And let's talk about that. What are the next three that are happening in this series of women in science? Yeah, sure. So um, as Maya mentioned, she's going to be talking about um, their work with uh, students. And then after that, we have um, actually a recent graduate who's working on her PhD. Um, and she's going to be talking about sediments and sediment accumulation at Piermont Pier. Um, and then we have another scientist who's going to be talking about her work with oyster restoration and how um, how oysters can really get students involved in community science. Rebecca, you've been holding these conferences, these virtual conferences for the past three years of women in science for the Department of Environmental Conservation. Has anything surprised you out of these talks? Have you learned anything new? yourself that you wouldn't expect to? Oh, that's a really great question. Well, I think, I, like Maya mentioned, I think I learned something from each of our speakers each time. But I think, it, you know, really learning the skill sets and the ideas that these women in these STEM careers bring to the workforce um, has been really important to me and important for me to, you know, really showcase that to a, a wider variety of um, audiences. 
Um, and what I love about this series is that anyone can participate. So we have had some high school students participate. We've had college students participate. And because it's virtually, it is accessible to a wider, a wider audience, it's teachers, educators, and scientists from around the valley. So that's been a really great experience as well. Maya and Rebecca, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on Do you want our listeners to know about? Oh, I, I, I guess if there's somebody in your life that is um, a woman in science who deserves to be recognized or highlighted, um, Rebecca has always taken ideas. So we can expect the series to keep on going for years and years. And if there's someone that when you're hearing the conversation or if you, if you log in to one of the, um, one of the speaker series sessions and you think of somebody, you should let us know because uh, I'm sure Rebecca would uh, reach out and line, line them up for next year. And Rebecca's email is hrteach. T-E-A-C-H at D-E-C dot N-Y dot gov. Thank you so much, Rebecca and Maya, for joining me on the program today. We're talking to Rebecca Hauser and Maya Namisto about the upcoming talk that's happening for the Department of Environmental Conservation Women in Science series. The talk is happening this Thursday, January 26th, starting at 3.30 p.m. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on the program. Thank you so much. We'll see you Thursday. Thank you for having us. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Rubio. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition here on this uh, wintry Wednesday. And a reminder that uh, James B. Huntington will be back with WorkShift Live next Wednesday. Local Edition will be back tomorrow night at this time. We'll do it all over again, bringing you conversations to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Up next, stay tuned for Let's Talk Vets with Doug Sandberg. And also, we've got Retro Cocktail Hour coming up at 8 o'clock. Remember, there is a winter storm warning in effect until 10 p.m. tonight for Sullivan County and Western Ulster County in New York State. Uh, in the surrounding counties in New York and Northeast Pennsylvania, around our listening area, it's a winter weather advisory. Uh, and that goes till 10 o'clock, same time frame. Uh, but there is this changeover that's happening. Uh, if it hasn't already happened in your area, warm and wet weather moving in from the south and the snow changing over to sleet and then eventually rain uh, in the later night tonight before moving out of our area altogether in the overnight with a low of 36. So there's your weather update. This is Radio Catskill. Listen local.